Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So to this morning's parsha, we're in uh, chapter 26 of Deuteronomy. We're in Parshat Kitavo, uh, when you come. So meaning when you come to the land. So this is Moses finishing the last presentation of legislation in Deuteronomy to the people and beginning um, at this point instruction, other kinds of instructions about what's to happen as soon as they enter the land. There is some scholarly debate about what it means when you enter the land. Um, I'll show you it when we get to it, but usually the way it's phrased in Hebrew uh, in our Parsha means the day you get there, right? As soon as you get there, but then what they're supposed to do and where they're supposed to do it doesn't really match how you could cross into the promised land and be where they're supposed to be within a day. So there's some scholarly debate about what that actually means. When you get to the place that we're telling you this is going to happen, then you do it. We don't know. So I'll, I'll lift up for you some of the confusing stuff about it. But then I read a really interesting commentary that I really want to share with you. So I even, for, for y'all, for y'all, I am learning technology. So I downloaded the upgraded and paid for the upgraded version of Scan Genius or Genius Scan or whatever, so that I could scan it and put it into Dropbox and be able to show it um, to you this morning because um, it's not available online. So that's what we're going to do today. All right, so let's look at our text. Here's where our triennial division begins. Um, and what's just happened, in, and it's going to tie together uh, the end of the the first year triennial and this triennial in the commentary that I'm going to show you. So I want to show you this, um, which is a little bit before where we begin. Um, this is, if you recall, if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, you might have heard this. When they bring their first fruits, they are instructed to take them to the priests and say, I acknowledge this day before Adonai that I have entered the land that God assigns us. That I mean, the, the priest says this, then takes it from the Israelite. Then you then, the you Israelite shall then recite as follows. My father was a, how does it say it in the Maxwell House Haggadah? It's not fugitive. What is it in the Maxwell House Haggadah? My father was a wandering. Lost? Oh. <laughs> lost, right? Good, Barry. That's probably fine in the Hebrew. <laughs> we in the English got, my father was a wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there, but there he became a great and very populous nation. So a lot of us remember this from growing up with Seder. Um, the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us. We cried to God. God heard our plea, saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. God freed us from Egypt by, we all know this from the Haggadah, come on, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and awesome power and signs and wonders. We've talked about that, signs and portents. God brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so that, that's the end of the triennial, the first year triennial. Um, and so then we're coming to this part of the triennial, triennial where we're going to get another kind of formula. So it's these formulae that, that we're going to deal with in the commentary afterwards. All right, so let's look at our text. When you set aside in full the 10th part of your yield, so this is tithing, right? In an agricultural community, a tenth of your yield of your harvest was your, your voluntary tax um, to support the, in those who don't have. In the third year, the year of the tithe, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat their fill in your settlements, you shall declare before Adonai your God, I have cleared out the consecrated portion from the house and I have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the orphan and the widow, just as you commanded me. I have neither transgressed nor neglected any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while in mourning. I have not cleared out any of it while I was unclean and I have not deposited any of it with the dead. I have obeyed Adonai, my God. I have done just as you commanded me. Look down from your holy abode from heaven, 
and bless your people, Israel, and the soil you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey, as you swore to our ancestors. Okay. So this is one of the, this is this, these two uh, statements to be made by an Israelite. These are some of the very few pieces of liturgy that we have from biblical times. We've turned stuff into liturgy from the Bible, like the Psalms and things that we believe probably the Levites sang on the steps, but actual Israelite liturgy, we have very, very little. We don't know if that's because there wasn't much liturgy, that most of it was performative, that you took your sacrifice, you took your tithes to the local shrine before Deuteronomy, before centralization of worship. Remember, they would have taken it to their local Levites. They would have taken it to their local shrine, to the local place where it would be distributed to the local poor. So, you know, we're not sure if it was mostly performative. And so there isn't a lot of liturgy. Or if we've just lost um, any kind of narrative about what the liturgy was that was recited in ancient Israel. We really don't know. So, um, but what we do have here are precious, you know, pieces of liturgy that are preserved for us uh, in Deuteronomy about what the Israelite was supposed to say when they brought these uh, offerings. So the first was about recounting their story of oppression in Egypt, their ancestors being, and we, you know, we could talk for days about what does it mean a wandering Aramean? There are lots of different, you can imagine commentaries on who that is, what that means. Is it Abraham? Is it Yaakov? There's lots of commentary written on that and about the deliverance from Egypt and then being brought to the land of Israel. And all of that is related Two, here are my, here's my tithe, right? How is it related? We were all slaves. We were brought to this land. This land does not belong to us. We are here on sufferance because God chose to give us this. God chose to liberate us and bring us here and give us the opportunity to live on this land and work it. It does not belong to us. It belongs to God. Therefore, I'm doing what I'm supposed to as an Israelite living on this land of flowing with milk and honey, flowing with, uh, you know, with flocks that give milk and honey, meaning date honey, so that there are date palms, which means there's water uh, and other kinds of things that grow. That is what milk and honey means, that it can support flocks for the semi-nomadic pastoralists, and it grows uh, date palms, which means agriculture. So both the semi-nomadic pastoralist and the agricultural tradition. Remember, we talked about both of those merging in ancient Israel. They were in tension, but they also merged into one entity called Israel. Uh, And that merger is expressed in um, halav udvash, milk and honey, semi-nomadic pastoralists and agricultural and agriculture. Okay. So in order to, you know, to, to earn staying in this land, then we give to the Levite and the stranger, right, and the widow, and the orphan, all of those who are disempowered in this particular system. We could talk for days about who that is in our West Los Angeles American culture, who that is in Barry's modern Israel, who that is in today's Turkey. You know, we could talk at great length about what words we would put in here, what terms we would put in here. But in ancient Israel, it was those who didn't have land to work, who were the most vulnerable, who did not have a male head of household to protect them, they were very vulnerable to exploitation, to abuse, to suffering, to death. So that is our obligation. The Israelite acknowledges to give to these folks. That's what enables Israel to stay in the land. So now here's the second. So here's the Here's the part. And then there's argument about what does this mean in the third year, the year of the tithe? They're supposed to tithe every year. So what does that mean? The third year, the year of the tithe. Maybe it's the year they don't take it to the temple, but rather have given it to the Levite, the followers and the widow that they may eat their fill in your settlements. So you take it locally 
to people locally who don't, and you don't take it. Usually you would take your tithe, you would take it to the temple and you had to consume stuff at the temple, having shared it with the the Levites. uh, And of course the priests are part of the Levites. But this seems to say, no, this is local. Your, your folks, you're feeding the people locally and they're eating it there, not at the temple. So some people, some scholars want to suggest this is the third, every third year. We don't know. It could be referencing third year as a, a, in response to the sabbatical year. We, we don't know. But that's what it says. <laughs> so there's some understanding that there's a every three year something or other happening here. So when you do that, you, you, when you're taking your Bikurim, you're going to say the following. I've cleared out the consecrated portion from the house. All right. So what does that mean? So I've taken HaKodesh. What is, what is Kodesh? We've talked about this a lot in Torah study. Kuf Dalad Shin always refers to something that is set aside. Kadesh, like there is no word for holy in our Hebrew language. That's the English we use to translate the, the concept of Kedushah. But actually, it's about being set aside or set apart for sacred purposes, for godly purposes. And in this case, the tithe, that food that is tithed is kadosh. It is off limits for anything other than the purpose it's designated for, which is to serve the, the, the folks we've mentioned. So you're going to make a declaration that you have cleared out all of the Kodesh, everything that was to be set aside, that you have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow, just as you commanded me, you God, I have neither transgressed nor neglected uh, any of your commandments. Uh, And so this can uh, refer to the, uh, and this refers, say, the scholar that I study in the JPS commentary um, is really directly related to the tithe. It's not trying to say I, I've never done anything wrong, right? I've never broken any commandment. It's really about the commandment to tithe. I've not eaten of it while in mourning. So, what does that have to do with with why, with why it's a thing? Um, why mourning? Um, possibly, it's that. You know, once you're dealing with uh, being in serious grief, um, you might not pay very close attention to what you're eating and you might have eaten some of the tithe. Um, Some scholars want to suggest, well, if you are in mourning, then someone you're close to has died. And in ancient Israel, you were commanded to bury your dead. They died in your house. People died at home. I mean, unless they died in a, you know, field accident, right? So they died at home. And even if they died out in the field, you'd bring them home, right? To prepare them for burial. So you, you by definition, for by burying your dead are impure. You have become impure. We've talked about this a lot. It can't be a bad thing because if you're commanded to do it as a mitzvah, then it can't be a bad thing that you're impure. But if you're impure, you probably shouldn't be handling that which is going to go to the Levine, right? To, you know, and that is designated for sacred purposes. You probably shouldn't be, that may be a taboo uh, in, in ancient Israel. So for, for whatever the reason is, I've not eaten of it while in mourning. I've not cleared out any of it while I was in a state, right? Of being tame, of being impure. Because again, you shouldn't have contact with that which is going to be sanctified while you are tame. And then this very interesting little piece here. I've not given any of it to the dead. The heck is that? <laughs> so what the heck is that? Um, we know that in ancient Israel, in Ugarit and in other places around ancient Israel that predate ancient Israel, there was a custom of bringing food and drink offerings to the dead. We do have archaeological evidence in the neighborhood um, from the biblical period where there is drilling holes drilled into the floor in burial places where presumably one would put food and drink down those holes um, to feed the spirits of the dead. We do have attestation of some of this stuff in uh, 
in Tobit, which is late second temple period. Um, in Tobit 417, it says, pour out your bread and wine on the tomb of the just and do not give it to sinners. So put it on the, you can feed the tombs of the just, but not the, don't feed at the tomb, the, the spirits of sinners. So that is some uh, indication for some scholars that this was going on uh, in late second temple times in Israel. Um, Torah never says you can't do that. Um, But again, contact with the dead is going to be, make you tame. It's going to make you ritually unclean. So if you're going to do that, you can't use tithing the food that's set aside for tithing and is kadosh. You can't use that to feed the dead. Okay. So I've done just as you commanded me now, very Deuteronomist here. Look at the language, very much the Deuteronomist look down from your holy abode. Where does God live in Deuteronomy? Min Hashemayim, right? God has withdrawn to the heavens for the Deuteronomist. So no longer is God walking around a garden, right? God's not coming down to Sodom and Gomorrah to check out what's happening anymore. God has withdrawn into God's heaven. This is some of the argument for why it's post-exilic. The people have already experienced the destruction, right? And they have been exiled. And the only way to really explain that is God has withdrawn and y'all get what y'all deserve. Y'all misbehaved. So you get kicked out of the land. Sorry, that's how it works. Um, but in any case, you know, or whether it's just an evolution of theology, God has withdrawn for the Deuteronomist. We see this all over Deuteronomy. Um, so look down from where God is now from heaven. Bless your people, Israel, and the soil you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey, as you swore to our ancestors. Um, and so what's interesting um, from the commentary that I studied about this is that the farmer doesn't come and say, look, I've, I've done what I'm supposed to. I'm bringing you my tithes. I'm sharing it with the widow and the orphan. And so bless my crops. Bless my family. Bless my, 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 because I'm doing the right thing. Instead, it is clearly a communal understanding that everybody has to do their responsibility in order for the people Israel to be blessed and the land of Israel to be blessed. And that is what the farmer asks for. I'm doing my part. Please bless this people and this land, meaning everybody, which is very interesting, right? Not praying on one's own behalf, but praying on behalf of the entire Jewish people um, and for the land that the Jewish people live on, because without that, the Jewish people can't be sustained. So what does it mean to say, I have fulfilled my commandment? God bless America, right? That's essentially what's happening here. Okay. So that's that was something of interest that, that I didn't observe on my own. Um, Adonai, your God commands you this day to observe these laws and rules, to observe them faithfully with all your heart and soul. Again, we, we, we know this language. Right. We know this from, of course, the Vehavta. Um, right. So th- we, this is familiar language to us from the Deuteronomist. Uh, you have affirmed this day that Adonai is your God, that you will walk in God's ways, because that's what it means. It means nothing to say Adonai is my God. That means nothing in Israelite or Jewish <laughs> practice. It doesn't mean anything. What does it mean to say Adonai is my God, that I will walk in God's ways. I will observe God's laws and commandments and rules, and I will obey God, right? That's what it means to say Yudhe is my God. It means that we will take seriously what that means in terms of what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. It's about behavior. The fact that you claim Adonai is your God means nothing from ancient Israel forward. It's what do you do with that, right? To say Jesus is my Lord and Savior is enough in certain parts of Christianity. Th- that's it. It's a declaration of belief, of faith, and that gets you a bunch of stuff. 
in, in Israelite religion, in Jewish religion, that does not work. It just doesn't make any sense Jewishly. This is what makes sense Jewishly. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just, this is, this is how Judaism thinks about the world and about God, which is I declare, I am saying out loud that is my God. Therefore, there are things I'm allowed to do and things I'm not allowed to do, things I should do and things I shouldn't do. And that I will lishmoa bikolo, I will listen to God's voice. Like what that means, we could have a field day with that. And Adonai, for God's part, has affirmed because this is a covenantal relationship. This is back and forth. There are mutual obligations. God is obligated to the relationship, as is the Jewish people. So this goes both ways. So Yudhei has affirmed this day that you are, as God promised you, Am Segula, God's treasured people who will observe God's commandments. So if we do what we're supposed to and live in line with the divine um, way of understanding the way we're supposed to behave and the kind of society we're supposed to build, then God will take care of God's part, right? That we will be an amsegula, that God will set you in fame and renown and glory high above all the nations that God has made. And you shall be as God promised, a holy people to Yudhei your God. Okay, that's pretty fair. We do our part. God does God's part. It's all copacetic until it's not, <laughs> right? So, all right. Um, all right, before we go to the next part, I just want to see what's happening for y'all. Judith? This passage is so rich, not only with, with the passage itself, but your comments on it. One of the things I was thinking of, of how, is how the Egyptians buried their people with all kinds of supplies, food and water. So maybe some of that leaked into the, the Jewish commandment as well. And also in Mexico, they still celebrate the Day of the Dead, which we've all heard about, uh, by bringing the dead person's food and his favorite liquor and flowers and everything to celebrate death and supply him with what he needs. Um, and then I had heard that the Kohenim are never allowed to touch the dead or deal with the dead. So how did they deal with burying their, their dead? And how do they deal with it now? And finally, uh, if, there's, if there's one bad apple who doesn't do, this is for all of Israel. It's not just for individuals. I know how I feel when I hear that Bernie Madoff, for example, is Jewish. It makes me feel like my whole people is at fault. And I think that's used against us in many cases as well, that, oh, see, he's a Jew. And finally, what you're talking about is walk the walk and not just talk the talk is your wonderful expression, godding. It's godding that's important more so than the term God. More so than our belief. Yes, right. right. We believe doesn't matter unless and until we're ready to translate that into how we behave. Right. To, to get at your points in order, if I can remember, uh, mm-hmm. is, um, yeah, so all over the ancient world, there's a belief in some kind of connection between the dead and how the living can sustain them. The remnant that we have that we still do is Kaddish. Right. Kaddish was originally about helping the soul get out of Gehenna a little early. Move on. Move on. And so El Male Rachamim is a little bit of that, right? Mm-hmm. So we still have a remnant of trying to help the dead as much as we can. Um, we just have a much less, a much less of a sense of connection to that. Um, now it's for us that we say Kaddish. It's right, to remind right. us. Well, but some people really believe but- that they're helping their loved one's soul move on quicker from Gehenna to, mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, Olam Haba to the, the world to come. But be that as it may, um, th- there certainly was a much more active belief in sustaining, right, and helping dead folks do what needs to be done. Um, and certainly that it seems that there's some of that left by the time we're looking at Deuteronomy um, and maybe even later. Um, and in terms of uh, the priests, right, priests are not supposed to become defiled. So other people take care of the dead. The priest's wife can do it. Right. Oh, so, like, I mean, you know, the, or his brother, you know, or who, who, cousins and what, you know, whoever 
is not serving as a priest. Today, we have a remnant of this. Kohanim still don't go to, to be in the same room as a corpse. Um, so for what, pur- for what purpose? I don't know, since we don't have a temple and they're not going to be serving in the temple and they don't have to be ritually pure. And everybody is ritually impure because there is no para aduma. There's no calf whose ashes we can use to purify. There's no way to purify anybody now. So what they're staying pure for. This is a remnant. This is a remnant. A fiction, right? So it's a remnant. And it's a way of staying attached to the fact that Kohanim had a different set of rules because they had a different status. Liberal Judaism in general rejects such a distinction. Everybody's the same. Once the temple falls, everybody's the same. There is no priesthood. There is, there's no mm-hmm. reason for it. There's no, and everyone is ritually impure because there's no temple right. to create a situation of ritual purity. And of course, yes. So there's a sense of collective responsibility um, in uh, in Israelite both Israelite identity in terms of if I, if I have to do my part because if enough people don't do their part, we're going to get kicked out of the land. Right. That was that was the theology. That was the understanding. If too many. And what was that game that we played as a kid? Spill the beans. Right. Like you can take a bunch of people not doing the right thing, but there's going to come a tipping point where if enough individuals don't do the right thing, the land will spit out the people. And that's how they understood uh, destruction and exile was that Mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened. And so now we you know, our, our like most people's, you know, like there, there's this sense of if there's a Bernie Madoff, you know, I, I grew up with my father always asking the question, oh, my God, is it is he Jewish? Right. Right. Like, because if so, it was like worse. It was a one more being. Right. If if whoever this criminal was, was Jewish, it was worse. Mm-hmm. It's like, 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 wait, but it makes no sense. But it's it's the sense of, you know, collective pride and their and collective shame. When a member of your people, a member of your family, a member of your congregation does something, we're implicated, right? And we, we still have a very real sense of being implicated by each other's behavior, which is one aspect of what it means to truly feel like one belongs, is that one is represented by, you know, one of one's, what it fill in the blank, family, tribe, clan, mm-hmm. people, religion, whatever, Right. So that's a remnant still in force. Well, I think it's a human. You know, I don't think it's just a remnant because we had it in ancient Israel. I think like uh, th- that's a human response to a sense of belonging to a group. Right. Is that somehow every member of the group stands for every other member of the group that only that only. I think I mean, right. Ed, you guys like who are in the business can can say more about it. But I think. I think that's one of the ways you know your identity is strong as part of a group is if you feel like people of the group represent you and you represent them. Right. right? There are people who, if they're going to eat trace, they take off their kippah. You think I'm <laughs> kidding. Right? They take off their yarmulke if they're going to be in a restaurant eating trace because they don't want it to reflect on observant Jews. Oh, right. So. Okay. And then finally, the godding. That is oh, such right. a wonderful expression mm-hmm. and, uh, and belief that helps a lot of people who say, I don't believe in God, but they do believe in godding. Right. God as a verb is a lot more relevant for, for a lot of us than God. Yes. As uh, Pam asks, aren't we all sinners? Well, of course we're all sinners, but, but you you can also be a tzaddik and and sin occasionally. Like you can be a righteous person and sin occasionally, which is a little different from how one might identify someone who's a sinner. Like one who like we all do this. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but we all do it. You know that we some people sin more than others. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, the Middle Eastern version of feudalism considered all of the nation's land as the property of the monarch, which means that if you can't keep homesteading the land, you are not entitled to keep it or give it as an inheritance to your children. So yes, Barry, although in some ways I feel like it's the reverse, like Mideastern feudalism comes later. Like this is, 
this is an Israelite belief. Um, so, but, but there are some who believe that the reason the Canaanites converted happily to Yahwism is because they had been exploited by feudalism and they, um, and they then, when, then when they were liberated from that feudalism by Israelite theory and political system and to some degree socialism and um, albeit a very stratified socialism um, that, that they, that they bought in to the story of themselves being liberated from oppression by yud hey vav because now they were part of a system where if their crops failed, they would be fed, as opposed to the feudalism before ancient Israel, which meant the Canaanite serf, we, I mean, we're, I'm using medieval language now, but serfs would serve, right, as you said, the king who owned the land. Um, and if your crops failed, <laughs> too bad, so sad, but you were, you were toast, you were done. Um, so that's one theory about how um, Canaanites were happy to, uh, not happy to, but but very much took on the story of the founding group of Israelites who had a narrative of uh, Egypt and being uh, liberated from Egypt and the oppression in Egypt, which I think is fascinating. Like Mora Tenzer would fight me on this, but that's okay. We love each other, um, right? More would say, if it didn't happen, why do we do Seder? It's not as meaningful. Talk about mythology all you want, Rabbi. It's not as meaningful. It's not as powerful. I'm like, yes, it is. If you have this story and then other people relate to that story and then they take on that story as their own, that is really powerful to me, right? Like that people who were not born Jewish can read these texts and really understand themselves as being read into these texts. And it becomes their story. That is so powerful to me. People who are allies of our community, Christians who take liberation theology, like that it, that it speaks to so many people beyond the original, you know, group who experienced whatever they experienced. Isn't that the power of story? Isn't that the power of myth? Isn't that the power of narrative? right? Is that it moves past the person who experienced it or the author who imagined it and touches so many people and inspires so many people? Call me quirky, but that's how I understand it. <laughs> Back at you, Melinda. All right. So let's look at, that was spoken by the way, like a true rabbi, but <laughs> a lover of the text. I don't really care what happened. Um, imagine the Star Wars, Star Trek feud. God forbid, Barry, that there should ever be a feud between Star Wars and Star Trek. God forbid a million times. Oh my God. My universe would like crumble. Oh my God. Whew. That was scary to even contemplate. For like yes, a- but the yeah, people take seriously the story they identify with, and right? <laughs> right. this led to uh, right. feuds. So now you're talking about life. conflicting so, narratives, right? But yeah. like, you're going to have to take that into another example because that example just like stopped my heart for a moment. Okay, so <laughs> let's let's go to um, let's go to the commentary that I wanted to look at. And I didn't think we'd be talking this long about the other stuff. So we'll see how much time we have for this. All right. So look, look, first of all, at when I received this by email, the 5th of September, 2001, Um, 2001, you might recall was 20 years ago, was 9-11. 9-11 happened right around the high holidays uh, because all of us tore up our sermons uh, (laughs) that we had written when 9-11 happened. Um, so this is 20 years ago, almost, right? Almost exactly 20 years ago. They didn't have the internet functioning the way it does now then. So we all got emailed these Torah commentaries. So this is the Torah commentary from 20 years ago. It's been sitting in my Kitavo folder for 20 years and I've never taught it. It's funny, right? So stuff jumps out all of a sudden in a different way. Because partly because of a conversation I just had, Lisa and I had lunch with a prospective member yesterday, and she was talking about the fact that she was never trained for bat mitzvah because she was raised conservative, and how the fact that she can't read Hebrew, she doesn't understand any of it, that she's always felt read out and left out in some way, and was so moved both by Reform Judaism that she found and our interpretation at KI of Judaism that you don't have to know Hebrew, that's not important. 
Um, and anyway, so, we, so that kind of informed why this jumped out at me. So I, I want to bring it to you. So this is Ismar Scorch, uh, who was the chancellor of JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary, which trained with the seminary that trains conservative rabbis. And so he's talking about our, our uh, statement by the Israelite when they bring their fruits, the first fruits, the formulaic synopsis of Israelite history to be recited by every pilgrim is found here in Deuteronomy uh, 26, 5 through 10. It's, you know, becomes the core of the Passover um, narrative. So then he starts to talk in general about ritual. Ritual at its best yields patterns of living. Kind of what we were just talking about, Judith. To inculcate feelings of gratitude, the Torah required of all pilgrims, whenever they came, to intone individually in the presence of a priest the requisite Thanksgiving prayer. And surely... Many must have known it by heart and recited it unaided. The Mishnah informs us centuries later that for those who could not, the priest would have them repeat the prayer after him. But the concession proved counterproductive. The unlearned felt embarrassed and stayed away. Thus, at some point, the temple leadership decided that the priest should prompt everyone, irrespective of their knowledge of Hebrew. What triggered the problem was the growing prevalence of Aramaic among Palestinian Jews in the days of the Second Temple. Gradually, Hebrew ceased to be the spoken language, yet the Mishnah insisted that the Thanksgiving prayer over first fruits had to be rendered in Hebrew. Hence, to preserve the ceremony of first fruits in a time of change called for accommodation elsewhere. To be sure, after the destruction of the temple by the Romans, the whole matter seemed irrelevant, except if you hoped for its imminent restoration, which the Mishnah certainly did. Right? Once the temple's destroyed, you don't have this ritual anymore. But they're still talking about it in the time of the Mishnah, because at the time of the Mishnah, they're still hoping the temple will be reestablished. So you still have to worry about, do you say it in Hebrew or not? If everyone is speaking English, do you have to say the Shema in Hebrew? And if people don't know it and don't read Hebrew, what are you going to do? What did we do? We invented a system whereby the cantor or the service leader says the stuff in Hebrew. What does the congregation say? Amen. And by saying amen, you get official credit for having said everything that the shots, the shaliach tzibor, the leader of the service just said. That is this. That's this, people, that it's this old, this idea that the Jews weren't speaking Hebrew, right? It's already here in the time of the Mishnah, that Hebrew was no longer something they knew how to do. So do you just say, fine, say it in Aramaic, fine, say it in Spanish, fine, say it in Ladino, fine, say it in English. That was not the answer. And in, and in many ways, it's still not the answer. We are still living this solution to the problem, not the problem, to the challenge of requiring some stuff in Hebrew, like Kaddish, which is Aramaic, because that's what was spoken right among the people who wrote the Kaddish. They wrote it in their English, right? Which we now insist on saying in Aramaic, right? which is very funny to me, but okay. Not funny, haha, but. The leadership understood the incontrovertible reality that adults do not like to be embarrassed. How many Jews stay away from synagogues because they are discomforted by the intricacies of Jewish ritual? Theological, historical, or even mystical explanations of a particular rite miss the mark of the impediment that the impediment lies in the doing. We give insufficient time to helping the uninitiated learn the choreography of an aliyah to the Torah or donning a talit or saying the amidah or reciting the mourner's kaddish. Meaning often flows from performing the mitzvah unselfconsciously. How many people have said to me, Rabbi, I didn't have a bat mitzvah, so I can't wear a talis. I didn't have a bar mitzvah. So I, what? What does one thing have to do with the other? Nothing. But many women have said to me, wait, 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 I can't do that. Like that's for men. I grew up with men doing that. And if I put it on, I feel weird. 
Well, you feel weird because you're self-conscious about it because you've never done it. But if you do it 732 times, my bet is you're not going to be so self-conscious about it. And therefore, it's not off-putting anymore, right? It becomes something one does. Okay. So there's a lot of things going on here. I know that. But um, I just want to bring a few more forward. It is, it is conceivable that sensitivity to people's discomfort could have taken the form of allowing Israelites to offer the Thanksgiving prayer in the language that they knew best. On the issue of the Hebrew, uh, of Hebrew, the rabbis of the Mishnah were not doctrinaire. They permitted the reciting of oft-repeated prayers like the Shema, Amidah, and the grace after meals in a language other than Hebrew. But neither were they indifferent. The authors of the Mishnah and Talmud struggled to blend polarities to yield a balanced Judaism, noteworthy both for its fidelity to the past and its responsiveness to the present. Hello. Hello, Mordechai Kaplan. (laughs) Right? The past has a vote, not a veto. Right? A famous Kaplanian saying, um, it's not just reconstructionism. I think, you know, when we're at our best, that's what we're doing as Jews, whether you're reform, unaffiliated, you know, whatever. When we're at our best, we're trying to create a balanced Judaism noteworthy for its fidelity to the past and its responsiveness to the present. The function of religion is not only to accommodate change, but to hold aloft a vision of the ideal is also indispensable. Stretching helps us grow. A Judaism without Hebrew has lost a vital measure of its authenticity. It is our unique Lishon HaKodesh, precisely because it served as the medium in which Israel first experienced God, the vehicle through which Torah morphed into an unending corpus of rabbinic literature, meaning if you just abandon the Hebrew, we wouldn't have all these word plays and all of this amazingness that comes out of the rabbinic interpretation, right, of the Hebrew, the deepest expression of the Jewishness of the Zionist state. So now he's going to go into how uh, Hebrew like, was fundamental to uh, the Zionist enterprise and, and in, in, in Israeli identity. Like imagine if people just came back to Israel and spoke whatever they spoke in the countries that they came from, right? So not only would it be a mess because who would understand each other um, or, or just adopt English. That was kind of, you know, as the language of the modern world, just adopt English. So and there's a lot of tension, as we've talked about before, about, you know, e- even in modern Hebrew, how much English has crept into modern Hebrew, right? The purists in Israel are upset you know, when someone calls something a computer instead of a machshev. Like there's a Hebrew word, that which thinks, right? Instead of calling it a computer, right? You know, and so, um, okay, so I just brought a lot forward, but I, I want to say that um, that that I think Scorch is, is, is absolutely correct in that that tension remains for us. As Jews who don't have a natural um, connection to Hebrew, other than how it sounds, the rhythm, our parents or grandparents said it, or you, whatever it is, just the cadence of it, like Kol Nidre, the rabbis tried to get rid of Kol Nidre, the Jews rebelled, they didn't, the Jews didn't care what Kol Nidre meant, they loved the sound. And they needed it. They wanted to keep it on the holiest night of their year. They didn't care what it meant. The rabbis were very worried that it sounded like abracadabra. Um, and they wanted to get rid of it because they no longer believed it. And it's like the people were like, we really don't care what you believe. Abracadabra works for us. Thank you. You won't be taking it. Rita, speak. I just wanted to remind everybody, most of us probably know that Rabbi Kaplan was trained at the Jewish Theological Seminary. So his roots were there and he, yes, he modified it, but a lot of the message that we just read probably re- would have resonated with him. 100%. 100%. Kaplan just pushed it further, right? Kap- Kaplan and his students just pushed it further, but 100% he was grounded in the, what we call the historical movement, which became the conservative movement, 100 million percent. He retired from JTS at the age of 83 to found the movement, all right, and taught till he was 103. And I heard he was one of the scariest people you would ever want to be in a classroom with. Um, so, so I think what, what I'd also like to just, you know, bring forward about this is an honesty about a, a real struggle for us around how much Hebrew to retain, how much ritual to retain when Jews aren't so responsive necessarily because they don't know the choreography. They don't know what they're supposed to do and therefore they're a little embarrassed and none of us like to be embarrassed. 
And so we kind of step back if, if we fear we might be embarrassed, right? And our tradition takes shame very, very seriously, right? They call it halbanat panim, the whitening of the face, and it's akin to murder. Um, because it's one of the worst things. And again, people who have studied any of this stuff know that it's one of the most devastating human experiences is to experience shame. Um, and so it's a deeply, deeply disruptive very destructive um, experience. And if one experiences it repeatedly, like in childhood, it, it can define who you are as an adult um, because it's so devastating to us. Um, and so, cause once upon a time you were left as toast, right? You know, you were dead. If you were too embarrassed, it meant you got left by the tribe. So, um, so what am I saying? This makes me want to start another group. This makes me want to start a group that wants to study the choreography of the service. Like people like see some of us taking steps backwards and then we bow. What the heck is that about? Who are you? What are you bowing at? As one of my friends called it bowing to the box. I'm like, <laughs> we face the ark. We face east and we bow towards the temple. We are not bowing to the box. Oh my God. But, but it can look like that to somebody who doesn't know what you're doing. You're bowing at the box, you know, right? So what is all that business? Why do I touch a mezuzah and kiss it? What is that? Like, and people feel weird doing that. Why would I do that? Why is she doing that? But I, but if I don't do it, like, is it because I'm uncomfortable? Like, I don't understand it. And so I don't know. So is there a party that would love to offer kind of a, a like three session? <laughs> Lee, is that, are you signing up? All right, great. Um, Susan signs up. Robin signing up. Oh, Lisa, look at all these hands. Okay, that's going down. I'm calling Rebecca. We're gonna we're gonna schedule that because there's so much beauty in some of the choreography, and it needs to be reconstructed. If one doesn't relate to it, that's fine, and you never have to do any of it. But if you don't know it and understand it, why would you relate to it? Harvey Fried is in. This is great. Why would you relate to it? Why would you even try it? Right. If you've never put on a talus and don't know how, why would you try it? But if someone teaches you the beauty of that and you get to experiment with it and you get to play with it, knowing this is a this is a laboratory and you get to do it at home as much as you want. It, it changes the possibility that we can enter into and then take on as our own some of that choreography and some of those rituals that that bypass the thinking logical brain about, should I be bowing? Like, you know, try it. I personally love it because where else do we physically express an understanding that we're not everything. We're not all that important. We say things like that, but where do we actually physically do that? Acknowledge, right? Bowing is very, I don't know. There's something very satisfying to me about it that is not rational. Um, and it wasn't put into place to be rational, right? It was put into place because that's what one did. It's like right now, how do y'all feel about not shaking hands and not hugging and kissing people? It's making me crazy. I don't know about y'all. It's making me nuts that we can't do the physical gestures that used to be without thinking about it. It used to be so satisfying, right? I love a good handshake. My father of blessed memory taught me, look someone in the eye and shake their hand firmly. None of this dangly fish stuff. You can't trust somebody who doesn't have a firm handshake. People, particularly men always say to me, wow, that is some handshake. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> right? What so- do you have against the fish stuff? Ah, this whole wet <laughs> noodle hand that some women in particular give you when they're when they I, need I wasn't to. referring to that. <laughs> Since we have a fish here. What's that? <laughs> anyway. So do you like, remember do you remember Amy in the the KI players when they did the takeoff on Fiddler on the Roof? And it was some set, some rise, some uh, set. Uh, no, it's some, some rise, some yeah. set. Some rise, some sit. Right. Right. For the schma. For the schma. Do you stand or sit for the schma, right. right? So people get very attached to whether or not they stand or sit for the schma. And if you ask them to do the opposite, watch what happens. 
<laughs> they get really wonky, right? It's not rational. Because it's not rational doesn't mean it's not powerful. In fact, some things um, are more powerful when you're not thinking about it. You're doing it because it, right? When the Pledge of Allegiance, like when I cover my heart for the Pledge of Allegiance, that's meaningful to me, right? As a as a gesture, and and it, it's deeply meaningful to me as a patriot. And um, you know, my father was a vet. Uh, and he was very attached to all of those Americans. I told you, he used to make us come out in the front yard any American holiday. He'd put a flag in the holder in the f- brick on the front of our house and the whole neighborhood would have to come and he'd make us all put our hand over our heart and say the Pledge of Allegiance. So I hated it as a kid having to do that. It was so embarrassing. And as an adult, I'm so glad, right, that I w- that it was inculcated in me, that the, the attachment to that physical um, you know, expression of American liturgy. Um, and, and, the, and like that, that's a connection I understand from bowing and doing all kinds of craziness <laughs> that has no place in modern Western society. All right. So I'm going to stop there. Any final questions or comments or anything before we move on to um, holding people in our care who are suffering? Susan? The, the thought of abandoning Hebrew to me abandons Judaism. We've had guests from from Mexico, from Argentina, from from Brazil for Sabbath, and all everyone says the blessings, albeit with a different accent on the Hebrew, says the blessings together, and then we can say it in our vernacular. And that that unity. The first time we had guests from Argentina, and we said far more prayers than just the Shema together, was was just overwhelming. In that you didn't speak the same language in your vernacular, but you no, both could say in our Judaism, we all spoke the same language. Right. So what, what it means to have a common right connection as a people through language, which is one of the reasons that, you know, uh, Kaplan, you know, it being and being all about peoplehood, you know, was about, you know, the, the ways we connect as a people are beyond practice. Right. It's language it's food it's culture it's you know smells and tastes and art and whatever beautiful um and uh margo i was just going to say that um i was raised in a hard reformed temple in uh on the east coast and my jewish friends who were more observant than i was their families referred to me as the Episcopalian. And I, it didn't embarrass me, but it, I, and I knew what, why they were doing that. But I just wanted to say that coming to the West Coast and finding Reconstructionism uh, just gave so much more meaning to my life. It was very, it was very church-like. And and we did things together, and you know, in uh, in, in ritual and stuff. But I really uh, found that this is um, something maybe that I was searching for all my life. But maybe I don't know. But there was one thing. If I can go on for a minute um, or two, no. Uh, <laughs> Rabbi Green. I love Margo. <laughs> Rabbi Green was once. Um, giving a, uh, a, a session out here in, on the West Coast. I think it was a retreat. And people were saying, well, how can you, you know, think like a Reconstructionist, but be so observant and do all the uh, rituals from the past? And he, he used the term, I step in and I step out. And I never quote. <laughs> and I remember him saying that. And it's always been very meaningful to me. Nice, Margo. Right. And that's, you know, Kaplan, w- translate that step in, step out into Kaplanian. And a Kaplanian way to say that is we walk fully into civilizations, fully in the American English speaking, rational, you know, we don't do weird stuff like that, you know, civilization and the the Jewish civilization, which has a top, you know, which has attached deep meaning to um to, to many of these things and, and it finds richness and meaning in a different language uh, and, and in different rituals that, that are not American rituals. So yeah, very Kaplanian. Um, 
Uh, and that is what? not to say that, and that's not to say that reform didn't have its way of doing that too, Margot, right? You know, re- reform said, okay, well, let's take what's important to us as Americans standing for the Pledge of Allegiance, standing for the Star Spangled Banner. Let's take that and let's wed that to the Shema. If that's our important statement as Jews, then let's, as Americans, honor our mm-hmm. Jewish important statements by standing for them. And that, you know, and so they added the Shema to the Baruch Hu in terms of what we stand for, literally what we stand for. And um, so I'm not saying re- that reform didn't do it. Reconstructionism is the only one that did. I'm just saying right. we, we chose different things yeah. and different ways to uh, to um, to do it. But uh, but anyway, so um, I don't want to be I've been told I need to be maybe a little more sensitive to the fact that uh, many people are not Reconstructionists. What made Kaplan so scary? What What made scary? He was like serious intellectual, really old, really crotchety. I don't know. I don't want to spread Lashon Hara, but um, I just heard he was very scary. Um, George. Yes. When I was in Cleveland many, many years ago, there was a reformed show, if you forgive me. And they were so reformed, they had Saturday services and Sunday morning. Yes. Yes. So that was one of the moves that the reform movement made in America was to say, if the time Americans observe Shabbat is Sunday, and that's when everyone agrees you don't have to go to work. You're not expected at, you know, things that Americans value that we're going to miss if we miss Saturday, then let's do it on Sunday. What day does it matter? What day you celebrate Shabbat? Every seventh day in the Torah, it doesn't say Saturday. In the Torah, it says every seventh day. Well, they have a point. Why does it really matter? The reason it continues to matter is the calendar is often what determines your identity, right? There was such a fight in the Talmud between two groups of Jews. They were so pitted against each other that one group moved Yom Kippur by one day. And how you identified was a huge statement. Which day did you fast? Thursday the 5th or Friday the 6th? That's how they defined, right, who was in and who was out of which group was which day did you observe Yom Kippur? And it was, right, a huge, huge divisive fight. Huge. Because, and and like, that's what the Talmud lives up. It's like, it was so bad that they moved the date of Yom Kippur, right? So like, it's the worst thing you could think of is that you move a date on the calendar and now you're not observing, right? And so that, that's, that move in America was just the, the limit. That was the line over which some Jews were like, nope, nope, and nope. We do not observe Shabbat on the Christian Shabbat. We observe Shabbat on the Jewish Shabbat. Look at Torah. It doesn't matter, people. What mattered was, uh-uh, that is too far to take our religious Shabbat observance and move it to the Christian Shabbat, not going to happen, right? And that was a line in the sand. And it didn't even take within reform, by the way. I mean, it might have among many reform, but the movement backed off it. Because just like Konidre, it made no sense. But the Jews were like, uh-uh, ad khan, to here and no further. Right there is a very definite boundary, and that's it. And who knows where that's going to be? Uh, on in any given year, or decade, era, who knows where the line is for the Jews where we're like, uh-uh, to here and no further. The rabbis, the leadership didn't know it would be Kol Nidre and they didn't know it was going to be Sunday, but turns out it was. <laughs> it's like, okay, got it. That's where the Jews are. That's, <laughs> that's what we're doing. Um, so, all right. So for now, they are where they are. I, the, the example I use a lot is... Um, is a tree in your living room in the winter. What if someday it becomes a Jewish custom for Hanukkah to have foliage in the living room for Hanukkah, right? People freak out about this right now. They freak out. And it's like Kaplan would have said, whatever, if enough Jews do it at some point and reconstruct it and it becomes a a, a holiday festival, then that's what it is. Who cares? It's a tree. It's a bush. Who cares? 
but right. But right now talk to Jews about that. And they go absolutely bonkers, right? That's, that's the line right now. I'm very curious to see where it is right in 10, 15, 20 years. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.